This is an ABC podcast. Public shaming. It's probably been around as long as humans have existed, hasn't it, as a way of controlling or moderating our behaviour. But has social media, social activism and the rise of the keyboard warrior changed how it happens and who does it? Hi, I'm Natasha Mitchell. On Big Ideas Today, a really timely conversation with four artists taking risks in the public eye. They're talking cancel culture. So let's think of some of the star artists who some claim have been cancelled for their behaviours or opinions or choices. You might think of Michael Jackson or Woody Allen or others. Because we're like, oh, but I like Manhattan and Annie Hall is a great movie. Like, you know, like you kind of, you're like, but oh, Billie Jean, uh, it, it does have a great beat. The two, the idea of like the art and the artist, like it also depends on the work, right? Like I don't think anyone's actually saying we have to say it's bad, the work is bad. It's like, yeah. Woody Allen made some great movies. But when I watch them now, I think about different things to what I was before. It means different things now. Like, if you sit down to watch The Cosby Show now, you're like, mm. oh, it's not as funny. <laughs> like, yeah. It- yeah. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary describes cancel culture as the practice or tendency of engaging in mass cancelling as a way of expressing disapproval and exerting social pressure. But is cancel culture as an expression a problem in itself, perhaps? And what's it like to be held to account or boycotted or called out or cancelled? Well, joining my colleague, journalist Paul Barclay, at this Goma Talks event in Brisbane is drag queen, TV host and advocate Courtney Act, a.k.a. Shane Jenik, Gumbanya and Turkish storyteller, actor, singer, writer and producer Brittany Shipway, artist Michael Zavros and performer, writer and comedian Zoe Coombs-Ma. Just a heads up, there was a technical problem with the microphone Brittany was using, but it was fixed early in the discussion. So over to Paul. OK, any, anyone on the panel been cancelled? No, it's not real. <laughs> I, th- I feel like it's important to like define what we all mean by cancel culture because yes, I think there's probably different meanings to different people and depends on which side of the political spectrum you lie, you might have a different idea because mm-hmm. I feel like it, it originated as a way for minorities and oppressed people to call out people who maintained power and had no accountability for what they did. And so it kind of, but then it kind of took a turn. And like in the US, we have last week Kid Rock shooting up a a case of Bud Light because they used a trans woman as a as a role model, and so there's sort of like those oh, two that. sides of cancel I think I'm culture. Glad I missed that, That's actually. just comedy. <laughs> that is just comedy. I mean, he's called Kid Rock. <laughs> Grow up, mate. Grow up, Kid Rock. <laughs> but but Zoe, you reckon it doesn't exist? Oh look, I don't know. I think that um, all those things that you just described, for instance, like it's sort of what we're describing there is actually just culture. Right, like it's just, it has, it's had certain different names in different times. I mean, I've been doing comedy for a really long time and the entire time has been the conversation, like under political correctness, is it going to ruin comedy? Is cancel culture going to ruin comedy? Can we say anything anymore? Has everyone lost this? Comedy is fine. Like it's been fine the whole time. So it's this, I actually think it's just like a, a conversation where people do things and then some people, or say things, and some people don't like it, Mm. those people have opinions and then the people who've said the things have opinions about that. Mm. Like, I don't... That's not new. Mm. Um, So it's, yeah, it's real. It's a real conversation thing that happens, but I just, yeah, I don't know if, like, the idea of cancel culture as this sort of boogeyman is um, not. Brittany, yeah. I was just going to say, if it translates to people losing their job, though, as a result of people calling them out online, I think that can be tricky and I think that... When we're talking about cancel culture, uh, I think a lot of artists are afraid um, that they're going to be cancelled, and when that permeates throughout your your work and your creative practice, that can be a little bit terrifying and daunting to to start a conversation or to say what you really think. Maybe you'll be held to moral standards of tomorrow, and it's appropriate today, but tomorrow, what if what if it's not allowed? Uh, I think it can be a bit scary. Are you one of those artists that has felt under some pressure or have been anxious about? some things that you've 
perhaps wanted to say? I think as a playwright, absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of it in musical theatre, which is my background as well, and in casting. Um, but I, I wrote a play last year called Censor, which is about a world where everyone gets so offended that music's been cancelled. It's out of existence. And uh, it's a comedy. Like, it ended up being so funny. Um, <laughs> Did it start as a comedy? It's, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's so outlandish and ridiculous, but at the same time, we're sort of living in that every once in a while. We, we self-censor because we're afraid of what everybody will say. Um, and I've watched producers make decisions because they're afraid they'll be cancelled or people will boycott their, their work or their production. And I think that when we get into that, it, it, it's a little bit scary. But writing a play called Censor, you're making a comment yourself about how you're feeling about the culture around you. So th it is a real concern to you that, you know, may, we, maybe we call it cancel culture, maybe we call it something else, but some pressure that you're feeling that artists face that perhaps is constraining what they can do, right? I, I think so, and I think when we open up social media and we listen to what people have to say uh, and we take it as gospel, a lot of the, the moral codes and the standards that we're adhering to on social media change really quickly. And I don't know who is the adjudicator of a lot of these conversations and, and who can play what role and what stories we can and can't tell. Mm. I, I guess um, when you're writing a play or thinking about art, you're probably being quite mindful about what is right, what isn't right, and wanting to make the right decisions. I guess the other side is maybe the people who aren't doing that, like who are saying horrible things and doing horrible things and or not even horrible but maybe not thinking about things as much and I guess then the consequences of cancel culture of someone in the public sphere saying something and then the public having the opportunity to say hey that's not really okay and we're going to make you aware of that there's like there's that one kind but then there's like obviously the toxic kind where people get doxxed and people lose their jobs or people receive death threats which I think it's like it, I guess it's like that spectrum of what is cancel culture and if some people are talking about like doxing and death threats and some people are talking about accountability for racism mm. I think they're two different things I guess Michael has been quiet on my <laughs> left, uh, but a painting of yours uh, acquired by Hota, the home of the mm. arts on the Gold Coast, generated some controversy several years ago, uh, titled Zeus Zavros. Mm. It is a hyper-realistic painting of a young boy laying on his stomach in a swimming pool on a swan pool toy with his naked backside exposed and a young girl swimming in the water next mm. to him. Mm -hmm. There were calls for that painting to be banned because it showed childhood nudity. Just give us an idea of what you made of that saga, perhaps the moral panic around it and what it says about the freedom of artistic expression for, for the visual artist. I think what's, what's strange about that, that work and that getting into trouble, because I've got into trouble for lots of works and some of them more so than that one, but what was particularly interesting about that is that it was quite old-fashioned kind of censorship. So someone came along to the show where that work was, was, was on show, so at, down at Hotter where they had acquired this major work of mine. It had already been showed in Hong Kong and somewhere else. Anyway, so they, they've acquired this work. This guy comes along and he's, he's offended by this, this thing. He sees uh, an, a bottom, a naked boy, the sort of thing that you actually can see in any major museum anywhere in the world. And Leo is playing the part, as my son, playing the part of, of an angel, a putti. So this is this, this work that has this uh, mythological uh, allegory. But also, it's a, for me, it's a very typical scene in our home pool. So I'm sort of playing both sides of this thing. I know it's a very provocative thing to be putting out out there in the world in some respects, but also it's a very simple domestic scene. So this guy comes along and he decides that this shouldn't be shown in case a pedophile comes along and sees this work. So he's upset that someone else might come along and find this disturbing. Mm. He, he finds it somewhat disturbing, but he's more concerned about what someone else might find disturbing. So this work has been seen by all sorts of people by this stage. Um, 
And I guess what's interesting is cancel culture normally exists in, in a, a social media framework. This is kind of old-fashioned censorship. So then he speaks to the Gold Coast Bulletin, I think it was, and then a bunch of articles happen, and then, then it gets on Channel 7 News or something, and they contact me, and I don't really want to say anything, so I don't respond to anything. And then this, this poor journalist is walking around a car park showing people things, showing, showing people this work on her mobile phone, and no one's really upset by it, and she's trying to get this thing happening. <laughs> And, um, and and this is this is this five minute thing on, on Channel Seven and well maybe it's Channel Nine I, I can't remember who it was but yeah. it sounds it had that very gotcha moment sort yeah. of thing and no one sort of rose to so it, it and she was just going up to people in the car yeah. park and going what, what do you think of this exactly bottom? what do you think of this. <laughs> um, but it, but it did it did bring to mind the Bill Henson controversy, it, didn't it? Did. It, uh, it did. And for someone like me, who probably the most provocative things I make are the work that I make with with my kids. We live in the shadow of that that yep. appalling witch hunt that happened in this country, and 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 it is it's good and right that we are very protective about those most vulnerable in our lives and that we care yep. about so much. But I think we are hypersensitive about the way children appear in. Uh, popular culture and, and in art. And I've kind of been skirting that in, in some of what I do, but yes, it was a tricky moment. So do you feel constrained about what you would paint in the future because of the spectre of Henson, because of this... I, I, I don't, yep. but, but going back to what was said earlier, I think you have this moment where you decide are you going to be brave and are you going to push back and are you going to not be constrained by, um, by censorship, basically? And I think, you know, we want artists to be spontaneous and to to ask the difficult questions that maybe we can't talk about and we want artists to, um, to challenge us and to challenge themselves and suddenly the word challenged has been replaced by triggered and, and suddenly we're in this strange position. But I, I, I think... I would rather be cancelled than, than not make something that I think I, sh I should be doing this. So, Zoe, your, your character, your comic creation, Dave, who you have performed many times in the past, uh, for those who aren't aware of Dave, Dave is a sexist hack male comedian with a neck beard. You've uh, seen him. <laughs> pretty good summary, is it? Uh, yeah. Uh, and he is concerned, it's fair to say, about cancel culture. Yeah, so I guess I created, and I suppose also, I mean, I, I joke about, like, it's not real. Obviously, the fears and the concerns, I mean, I just made a, a documentary about the queer history of Australia. Like, I know what it is to be <laughs> afraid of being cancelled. <laughs> like, it's, it, is a, it is a real fear sort of thing, and that bravery that's required in order to make things. I think that that's a really valid thing, but I, I suppose we're also talking about, like, ethics, right? Um, so I suppose... If you are afraid of getting things wrong and you're actually asking those questions, you're doing the right thing. And fear doesn't necessarily mean that something is coming for you. I mean, I'm scared of ghosts, but they're not real either. But, like... <laughs> so Dave kind of came about as... It was really a thing about ethics and about empathy, actually. So it was, Dave is a character who is based on, like, every terrible male comedian that I had to get on stage after. Um... <laughs> Who would get up and be like, oh, you know, my bloody wife won't fuck me and where's the clitoris? Um, <laughs> I think those two jokes are linked, um, but... <laughs> I'm just doing gear now, but um, I... Uh, but it's... So he was... It, but the thing that I found really interesting was those guys would get up and the audience would, like, love it as well was the other thing. Like, when we talk about accountability, we're all accountable for those sorts of things. So a comedian getting up on stage and telling, like, a sexist joke... It only works if it gets laughs. And so the audience is also accountable in that way as well. So I suppose by creating this character where I was doing exactly the same sort of material as these guys and often performing on the same stages, like often, I wouldn't do this intentionally, but often if I performed in a lineup show, I would get up and I would do a joke as Dave and the guy, maybe not straight after, but certainly at some point in the lineup would get up and do the same joke, but for real. And it was really about kind of creating something where it was like, oh, actually making the audience question what their role was in mm -hmm. receiving that. Because comedy, I think, is it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Comedy is really only just a mirror of society, right? Like, it's just sort of... It doesn't, comedy doesn't like make people sexist or racist or whatever. It, it, it reflects those prejudices that, that exist there. So is it the same audience that's laughing at your 
creation of the fictional Dave comedian as is laughing at the actual Dave type comedian? Yes and no, I suppose. Yeah. It just sort of became a totally different thing because it's a parody. People start to notice that you're laughing at tropes and you're laughing yeah. at the laziness of it. And then what that does is it kind of creates a different environment for those guys to then perform in, which... Yeah. Didn't make me that popular, but um, <laughs> but it, it's also I think that's that's what you're sort of playing with, like that's what comedy's about, and that's why when you know we talk about people like like the Dave Chappelle's etc. When people are doing like offensive comedy, I don't have a real problem. I don't care what Dave Chappelle thinks about trans people yep. personally, but what I do care about is you've got when you have like a, a comedian who's on stage and they you have a responsibility when you're speaking publicly, and they're skilled and they know how to make people laugh. But what they're doing is they're collecting a bunch of people together in a room and going, hey, this thing that you might feel a little bit afraid to say, I'm going to say it, and your prejudices, not only am I validating it by saying it, Mm. but the person next to you is laughing, you're all laughing together and you're sort of emboldened. And then someone like Dave Chappelle or Louis C.K. or whatever will claim they've been cancelled. And then almost immediately later, like straight after winning a Grammy, they've both won Grammys since they've been cancelled. And like Louis C.K. is selling out Madison Square Garden. Like Mm. that's, you know, that sort of idea of cancellation is sort of... I feel like the, the term cancel culture... It's this term that is used by the right in order to create an enemy whereby they are the victim of something, when actually what they want to do is just say, I hate trans people. And if they did it like that, then people would go, oh, you, you're an asshole. Like they, you know, they would... Um, but it's, 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 so, it's, it's creating this kind of false uh, baddie mm. in cancel culture. Shane, I wanted to talk about an incident that you were involved in after you appeared on Play School, Storytime, reading a children's book in drag, and a South Australian Liberal senator claimed that the ABC was grooming children as a result. Not exactly, I suppose, being cancelled, but a pretty serious slur. How did you feel about that, and what did you think the intent of that statement was? Um, I, I think what's really important when talking about and thinking about cancel culture is A, the context and also the volume, because so often there can be very strong statements made by one person in this case, and Catherine Deves, um, backing him up on Twitter. Um, there was literally like two people, like the senator in the estimates who said this, and then one other person on Twitter who like retweeted it and was like, yeah. Um, and I think it's really easy to get sucked into that narrative and react to that narrative. And I think that narrative is so harmful and so unhelpful because not only is it playing into the old trope of equating queer identity to pedophilia, but it's also actually taking away from when acts of grooming are taking place and where children are actually being harmed because it's desensitising people to that language. And so I think what's really important is to be front-footed in those situations rather than reactionary. And I did write an op-ed piece for the Sydney Morning Herald, but I wanted to just sort of say it once, say it clearly, and then move on because it's sort of like Australian politics spoken with an American accent. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing attempts at that. I still hold faithful that Australia is a little more aware and more mindful than that, generally speaking. And so I think, I think if you like, if you could just somehow like poll Australia and be like, guys, do we all agree with this? Yeah, no, no, I didn't think so. Okay, good. And then move on. I think we would find that actually most fair-minded people in this example uh, understood exactly what was going on. They saw me reading a lovely book on Play School Storytime and thought it was lovely and would be happy for their kids to watch it. But, but, but Brittany, it's, it's, it's social media and Twitter that distorts this. I mean, it's, it's one thing someone making a comment or attempting to cancel uh, someone or boycott somebody, but it, it really gets toxic once Twitter takes on, right? I think so. Uh, I mean, how can you hold yourself accountable to the loudest person on Facebook? Uh, it's just impossible to keep up with. You can't keep everybody happy. The point of art and, and theatre and storytelling is to, yes, hold a mirror back at society, but also to ask questions and not answer them. 
uh, it's for the audience to have discourse in the foyer and not just this on the iPads and the, and the phones. I, I think that really limits our conversation, especially with the algorithms. The, just, person, who's, the person who's aggrieved is going to speak so much louder than the 100 people who say, I loved your show. Yeah. Loudly and bring all their friends. <laughs> and I think that's, that's where this starts to fail. And I don't think people understand how much artists and individuals take that on. But, but they haven't come to have a conversation with you either. They've come to make a statement. They're not interested in hearing from you. They've come to make a statement, to make a show of a statement a lot of the time. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right as well, I think, is mm. the thing. Like, when someone disagrees or finds your work offensive or has an issue... Sometimes I've, I've certainly had people call out things that I've done in shows, and in some cases, like, there was one person who was like, oh, that joke is, had uh, put it on Instagram, was like, this joke is transphobic. And she had a big rant about it. And I, had, I, I contacted her and I was like, you've actually heard the joke wrong. She'd misheard the word mm. that I'd used. And so I was like, you're right, that is transphobic. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not what I said. Yeah. Or mm. someone might have misinterpreted something or it might be about, like, it's about having a larger conversation. So I, I do think there is... I think we've reached a different part in the sort of cycle of the way that social media does that as well. I think there's certainly been... In the early days of Twitter, there was a real, like, rabid energy for, like, jumping on board and cancelling people. But I don't think it happens in quite the same way anymore as well and I think those things do go through cycles. It's so slippery, that, that's the thing about this term is it's so slippery and hard to define and I think you were saying earlier that the right used to claim that the left the kind of people on, on the progressive side were the people that were seeking to cancel and boycott those people whose views that they didn't like or found, found offensive but actually I attended a festival recently and was directly contacted by a member of the conservative media who wanted to know if I'd be withdrawing from that festival because they perceived some of the people who were attending that festival as having offensive views. So it's kind of like everybody's having a go mm. at it now. Well, it's really. almost like everyone has an opinion. Mm. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but in, in, that, in that instance, um, and in, in your example, Michael, someone had an opinion, but then actually it seems like the part that played the biggest piece was the media opportunistically looking to make a story out of nothing. And I think that's quite often where we fall victim is it's actually, I mean, on Twitter, obviously, there's pylons that happens, but it, it, there's you know, often media, not necessarily journalists, but people in the media creating stories where stories don't exist because they know that it will get people outraged and they know that it will mm. get attention and it will get clicks and it will get shared. And so really what we're dealing with here is not rational, measured conversation, but rather like what will get the most mm. attention. Oversimplification, actually, is yeah. part of it too. And but the loss of context, right? Like it's very absolutely. different to see like one of your works in a gallery in the context there and some a journalist to come up and go, look at this, like that's... Absolutely. And the same different. thing, you know, it's a, a journalist will tweet a line from, from a, an essay that a professor has written and suddenly they've lost tenure and their whole career is down the drain. And I think context is key, but social media doesn't provide any context at all. It just gives you this, this bite. And we're quite often prepared to respond to this, this thing that we've had a, a brief second with. And people get confused about, you know, it's perfectly fine for anybody to like or dislike anything that any of us do. I mean, any of... No, it's not. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, so it's fine if people don't like what I've done in, in, in terms of my media or the, or, or the performances or paintings or art that people on the panel have created. But, Michael, I was reading the David Marr book about the Bill Henson case back in the time, and he wrote... And for those who don't remember the Bill Henson case, it was uh, an exhibition that Bill Henson had put on of photographs of teenage children who were nude, and uh, he faced a very real prospect of being criminally prosecuted. Didn't go ahead, the prosecution, but the exhibition itself was quite literally cancelled and was a huge controversy at the time. And David Marr wrote in the book that... Australians are not satisfied with just expressing disapproval. We want action. When we disapprove of something, we want governments to leap into action. Uh, and he wrote that those who deeply disliked the Henson pictures weren't content 
to express their disapproval and lead it at that. They wanted something done about it. Do you think that he was onto something there, David Marr? Yeah, about I think so. I think cancel culture happened largely just after that. And governments are doing something about it. I mean, Kevin Rudd had a gotcha moment on the Today Show when someone showed him an image of it, despite the fact that a Labor government had sent Bill Henson to the Venice Biennale as our greatest artist at, at the time with, with similar work. Kevin Rudd said, that's disgusting. And absolutely contributed to, to this awful witch hunt that the art world has sort of recoiled from ever since. And I think censorship has ramped up and self-censorship, but not just censorship from, from the right anymore. You know, I think what's happening in the art world, and this is something that's a, a tricky subject, but censorship used to come from a very conservative position. You, know, you go too far, you expose too much flesh or whatever it is, and you're told to be to get back in your box. But censorship now comes from the left just as much, and from inside of our industry, we're taking ourselves apart rather than from someone looking in. And I think that's, that's worrying. Mm. I, yeah. oh, I was just going to say I definitely agree in theatre and in musical theatre in particular. The types of shows that are put on are definitely censored and casting is a really big thing and it's sort of led way to box ticking in casting, trying to show that, you know, the diverse uh, diversity is supported in casting and in storytelling, but it's not because everybody, like, we've got to fit into this tiny little box now. We can't exist as human beings. Uh, it's really reductive. Do you think that's better than what it was, though, which was no diversity? Is it like a stepping stone, but we're not quite there yet? I think it skips a step. I think we're trying to fit people into stories that already exist as opposed to um, championing and celebrating culture and new stories with new writers. It's the inclusion part of diversity inclusion. Sorry? Like when people say diversity and inclusion, mm. they're doing diversity, but they're not actually being inclusive. Yeah, I think so. I think it just starts a little bit earlier on yeah. as opposed to going, here's this white story. We'd love for you to fit into what yeah. we've already got, like our, mm. yeah, our yeah. set piece. So. so as someone with First Nations heritage, are you saying that when sometimes you're approached for a role, that you're approached because a producer is kind of ticking a box? I've want. been told that explicitly. I've been told, hey, we've got this show, pick a role and it's yours. And I've said, no, like, it's actually really offensive. I've, I've been working for so long and for so hard. It's humiliating. <laughs> and I, I want to get work based off of merit and not because I make them look good. But it's an opportunity for you, right? But a poor one. Uh, I, I got into the arts because I want to tell stories that I, I missed on stage. And, and I think we're, even throughout all of this cancel culture stuff, we're still missing the point, which is we're not hearing the stuff we want to hear. We're not exploring the stories we want to, we want to listen to. It's not true representation. Mm. Anyone else got any thoughts on, on, on that? Uh, I think it's an interesting one because I do think, uh, I agree with what you're saying totally, but I also think there's like, in, in terms of stepping stones and change, I, I, I feel, maybe this is a cynical approach, but I think that unless people are held accountable when they don't do that, when they, then representation, there's no, then we will continue just to get sort of all white kind of like straight type of stories as well. Sometimes it's an overcorrection, but hopefully it's in aid of creating, but I also like creating space and creating platforms. But I also think, but there's a trickiness in that because then there's this weird, the box ticky thing is, yeah, it's gross and it feels sort of strange and weird. Yeah, it, it's interesting though because I think someone mentioned before that it's like the offended person, the negative comment will always sort of feel, well, it certainly feels the loudest. But I think we do need to kind of correct that in a way of like, well, if we're what we're aiming for is like more stories and diversity and more like diverse representation and, and genuine kind of engagement and ethics... We need to be also amplifying the things that we like and the, the people that we support and kind of pushing towards positive change. And I mm. think that's certainly with the way that the left does sometimes have a tendency to turn on ourselves. It is equally important to be as loud as possible when someone's doing something good, I suppose, that we mm. do support. I, I wonder, as, as an advocate, Shane, can these moments of calling out someone for saying something homophobic, transphobic be moments where teachable moments, as they say, perhaps opportunities for informing people yeah. some of these issues. I think it depends on how they're handled, and I think that's one of the issues is that quite now we become 
like tribal, very right, very wrong. Um, I was on Celebrity Big Brother in the UK. And Congratulations. Well thank done. you, thank you. Uh, but I was in the House with Anne Whittacombe, who was a Conservative politician who in 23 years of Parliament voted against every single piece of pro-LGBT legislation that had ever come before her. And I remember before I went in, I thought that Jermaine Greer might be in the house. And so a friend of mine who is a trans woman, we had this lunch and she role played Jermaine Greer and I was me. <laughs> and so we practiced like what some of the things Jermaine and I might talk about and how they might be handled. And actually through that process, what I realized was I wasn't going to change probably not going to change anyone's opinions, especially not Jermaine's or in this case Anne's, but there was a lot of other people watching who might not understand. So if I got stuck in name calling um, and like, you're wrong, that wasn't very helpful to anybody watching. And so actually engaging in a conversation, mm -hmm. listening. And I remember um, one of our first interactions, Anne was like, well, marriage equality as you call it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she grew up Church of England, but she left the Church of England and became Catholic because the Church of England were too progressive for her. <laughs> so, um, so she definitely had very strong opinions uh, about all sorts of things. But in that moment, I listened to her. I had a conversation with her. And afterwards, she came up to me and she was like, oh, so thank you for that. Usually somebody would have, you know, called me a homophobe or stormed out of the room or mm. had a strong reaction. And, and you didn't. And I, I like that. I quite... And I was like, ah, oh, this woman probably doesn't often have much opportunity to participate in a, in a conversation. And, and I think that there are certain things that as a society we've just agreed upon. Like mm. we don't need to debate whether trans people have a right to exist. But I think in that situation where she was debating whether I had a right to, you know, get married or whatever exist in different ways, um, I felt I had the privilege and I had the comfort that I was fine engaging her in that conversation and I was able to do it sort of calmly and rationally. But I know that these conversations are really sensitive for a lot of people and debating your right to exist obviously can bring up a lot of, of trauma and stuff mm. like that. So I do see a real value in like moderate conversation and engaging people rather than this sort of polarised nature that we're living in. And I, I, I kind of think that maybe we're almost like in an adolescence when it comes to social media and the internet, where like, like the hormones are racing around our body and we're just sort of, we don't really know what we're doing. Mm. It's almost like, you know when, you, when you're like a teenager and you think that you know like everything, yeah. and then you're like, oh my God, when I was 15, I thought I knew everything, <laughs> but now that I'm 17, I actually know everything. <laughs> and then when you're 18, you're like, well, I'm such an idiot when I was... And then eventually you realise... Yeah oh, maybe I don't know everything now. <laughs> I feel like maybe we've had enough, like, changes and loops and, like, people coming and going through and redemption stories within yeah. the, the social media arc that actually it's sort of coming of age where we're starting to realise that there can be a back and forth, there can be kind of some sort of meaningful change and yeah, yeah, conversation. I, yeah, I hope that's right. I mean, I, I wonder whether we've lost the art of disagreeing in a civilised why? No. I think we've only lost it if we think <laughs> if we think we've lost it. Like if we're like that's quite civilized. <laughs> I do hear a lot of people sort of make that conversation, and I think, well, disagree in a civilized way and see what happens. Maybe it is Twitter that is giving us the impression yeah, I think that, so. that, that that's the case, because there is no place it seems for nuance on mm. Twitter. Mm. You know, it's just hyper. Crazy. Elon Musk is pretty nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> Shane, I noticed that you, you, in the past, said that you wanted to be a spokesperson for anti-cancel culture. I'm cancelling cancel culture. <laughs> if we had iPhones and recording devices when we were young, we would all be cancelled. And, I mean... I, I thought about that and I thought about some of my own uh, youth, youthful indiscretions and ignorance, <laughs> frankly, mm. when, I, when I was younger, and I would not want that on display today, but because I'm an old fella who existed before the internet, I don't have to revisit it, mm. but plenty of people do. Yeah. Uh, so, so in a sense... I you don't know, remember saying you know. that, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it's true. Like, I think about, like, my behaviour... Well, up until, I don't know, does, does the internet, does social media 
do these things actually make us a little bit more aware of what we're outputting? Like I say, I would definitely be cancelled from some of my younger behaviours if phones existed, but maybe if phones existed, I would have been a little bit more mindful about what I was doing. Mm. I'm not sure. But you do raise an interesting point there of like, you know, if you if you knew that people were recording it, you probably would behave differently, which is, is true, right? Like when yeah. you look at things like a lot of the conversations that have happened in comedy, especially sort of early on in a way, where it's like there was this weird crossover period where comedy was like for a very long time, it was really just for the people in that room. And mm. it's very much context and you're making eye contact with people and it's a particular sort of thing. Once you record that and then stream it out like to the rest of the world, it becomes a different thing and the the you don't have as much the, the comedian doesn't have as much control over the like the way what they're saying is being interpreted as mm. well so things can that are not meant for big audiences like that can get out and can get misinterpreted can be taken out of context mm. and i don't mean that in a way where it's like someone makes a racist joke in the room and it's like okay and then like it yeah. becomes bad outside mm. of the room i just there is a different level of kind of control and stuff but there comedy so. is a dangerous space I, and I think some comedians like to play with that sense of danger. <laughs> like quite I mean, I remember Adam Hills telling me when he had the, the midnight slot at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival one year, and oh, uh, yeah. he, he, he was coming on after an act who was walking off stage with blood pouring out of their head because someone had thrown a glass at them because they weren't funny, <laughs> and he was just illustrating how heavy things could get at I, some of these comedy events. I've done that room, and uh, it's called Late in Life, right. and uh, it's like a real bear pit, and it is that sort of thing. I actually um, I did that room, and I was performing as Dave, and part of my act as Dave is that I will trip over. So Dave comes out, does like five minutes or like does a few minutes of like really bad off gear, then trips over and then gets concussed and then does the exact same material again. <laughs> and uh, I would have like a blood pump rig and I would start bleeding profusely from the head. Um, but because it was in this room that was so volatile where there was like, everyone's like... The, this is Scotland and it's 3am and it's like people are like next level drunk mm. and um, people were so drunk they didn't know what was going on, they didn't know I was a woman they didn't know what was real, they didn't know where they were or who they were and then someone, I could see the security guards walking towards me, I was like oh someone's, someone's gotten in a punch up in the front row or something and then the security guards came onto the stage, grabbed me, went are you alright mate and carried me off stage because <laughs> someone had gone out and gone like this bloke's not doing well and uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> I can still remember the, um, the, the look in this guy's eyes as he looked at me and realised I had a fake beard on and was a woman and uh, I, I was like it's part of the act just go with it <laughs> it was the best thing ever but yes comedy is a real but I have also had things thrown at me on stage I've had like really terrible kind of like really scary altercations you're in like bars people are drunk it's it's it's, it's it's a shifty kind of uh, space, which is, but it's also workplace as well. And when we talk about like cancellation, we talk about someone like Louis C.K. It's often conflated with like he's doing edgy gear. No, he masturbated in front of his colleagues. Mm. The pe Louis C.K. is doing fine. We still know his name. The people who've been cancelled are the women that he masturbated in front of and then had blackballed from the entire industry. Mm. We don't know. Like, does anyone know their names? How, what's their comedy like? Mm. Like, they so there actually are people who get cancelled from the industry, people who get pushed out, people who don't get the opportunity to speak to, or to have a career. And I was certainly in that space. That's where Dave came from, where I was like, I can't be a woman in this environment anymore. It's mm. too, it's impossible. Mm. And so I had to create some other way to exist there, and that was wow. by parodying the guys. <laughs> But um, I think that Zoe made a, a really interesting point about the fact that the women that were the victim of, of that, they were cancelled. And I think that's really interesting. We're talking about cannibalising our own industries um, within the industry, like people who work in it. They are the ones that talk the loudest and, and they're the people that make sure that a whole production gets shut down or, or the women who came out against, you know, sexual harassment, they're the ones that never get to see the light of day and they never get work from there on in because they're too difficult to work with. But that yeah. does bring us to this issue of being held accountable 
for things that you say and do. We do need a way, don't, don't we, of, of condemning certain behaviour, of signalling our disapproval of it. How do we do it in a way, I suppose, especially around performance and art and creativity that's not stifling? It's, it feels like a slippery slope, right? Because death threats, not okay. Mm. But saying, I disagree with that, and here's why. Criticising, people giving their opinions, that's all valid. Uh, but when it comes to people having these pylons and extreme reactions where they're becoming toxic, it's, it's where it's not helpful. So, Michael, how do we separate art from the artist? The artist we might not like as an individual, uh, <laughs> but there are... <laughs> I think I she's mean, lovely. I, I, I mentioned, <laughs> I, I mentioned uh, Picasso uh, earlier as one example of mm. someone who uh, many people uh, regarded as an odious individual mm. but is an influential artist to the 20th century. Mm. Um, countless popular culture kind of individuals that I could name who've, who've fallen out of favour for a variety of reasons mm. but whose art may well still be considered valuable. Where do, where do we draw the line between the art and the artist? I, I think that line is, is increasingly grey. I mean, we, we connect the art with the artist all the time and, and artists do that. We, you know, we have good reason to do that. The media likes to do that. We look, we look like our art, a bit like people look like their pets. We sort of look a bit like <laughs> uh, what we make. And I think that, that connection or that line is becoming increasingly blurred. So when people pile on and hate this thing that you've done or this post or whatever, it often is more about you than it is about the work. And I can see, I've often seen instances of, of, of that. And social media, we can blame it for all sorts of things, but suddenly social media is my gallery, you know, and I leave it open to be cancelled by this cancel panel tonight. Um, anyone can come and look at anything and say whatever, whatever they like, but that is the new gallery for artists, you know, that suddenly the, the world is your, is your art gallery. And This is a discussion that many people are having, and I hear it said all of the time, I will not read Harry Potter books ever again. I will never watch a Woody Allen film ever again. I will not put Michael Jackson's music on Spotify ever, ever again. But, but, but then we do, don't we? And JK's about to release this new theme and yeah. you were just dancing to Michael Jackson. And, yeah, that's um, the <laughs> I think we sort of have this grace period, maybe, um, or, or this, this, this hiatus, you know, from the limelight. And then cancel is maybe not quite cancel, as you were saying before, it's not real. And, and I don't know if you, if you weather the storm. But um, I suppose the question is, should, should we express our disapproval with the behaviour of individual artists by individually banning their art? I think it's a bit of a straw man argument, isn't it? Like, the reason we ask the question is because we feel a bit, like, uh, a bit mm. icky about yeah. those sorts of things, right? And so it's actually... I think that it's... it's Because we're like, oh, but I like Manhattan and Annie Hall is a great movie! <laughs> like, you know, like, you kind of... You're like, but, oh, Billie Jean, uh, it, it does have a great beat. The two... The idea of, like, the art and the artist, like, it also depends on the work, right? Like, where if you're a comedian, you, you are you are yep. much closer to it, where it's, it's quite different with the, in the visual arts. There can be a bit more of a removal. I don't think anyone's actually saying we have to say it's bad, the work is bad. It's like, yeah, like Woody Allen made some great movies. But when I watch them now, I think about different things to what I was before. Like, same with Michael Jackson's music. And it's also about, like, what context are you playing it in? Like, what it means different things now. Like, if you sit down to watch The Cosby Show now, you're like, mm. oh, it's not as funny. Like, it, yeah. it's, even though the writing was good at the time, mm. it's, yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. It's also, if you sit in your bedroom and read a Harry Potter book that you already own, that's whatever. No one. Know, if a tree falls in a wizarding forest, like it's. <laughs> but it's different than to be supporting something new coming out, right? If you're mm. buying tickets, is that going directly to that person? Mm. Is it furthering their career? Is it making their platform bigger? Those are the sorts of. Yeah. They're actually ethical concerns that are tricky. It's curious with the Harry Potter books because there was a campaign to ban them at the time they came out by yeah. people on the right in America who saw mm -hmm. them as satanic mm. worshipping books. So yeah, now it's how like the queer we trans yeah. witches yeah, how who the, are how, how the wheel has turned. <laughs> yeah. Can we agree that the threat 
of boycotts, of calling out, of cancel culture, whatever we want to call it, is having a dampening effect on... I mean, are there things, Michael, is there, is there visual art today that would be harder to create, that would harder, be harder to take the risk of creating than 20, 50 years ago? Yeah, I think so. It really depends. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about a major retrospective of Chuck Close's work who was, that was shut down a couple of years ago because he said something to a model and she came forward and he, she was offended. And I think it was a disproportionate action, perhaps, that was taken. I'm only reading this stuff in the news, so yeah. I wasn't there. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't actually know what happened. But that's a huge hit to an artist, a disabled elderly artist, in a wheelchair when a model was apparently offended by something, that's, that's, a, that's a massive form of censorship, you know, uh, and a cancelling just before he died, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's takes a, a massive hit to a huge figure in American art. I mean, we, I've got a show coming up here in two months. We have lots of conversations about being risk averse. Mm. We, we actually do. And, and I, I bring them up and we talk about things and uh, I, think, I think it is having an impact. Mm. Absolutely. You know, taking art down is just, is, is just, it's terrible. It is never a good thing to take down an artwork because someone's offended or outraged by it. I just mm. think it's never good. I think it, it's a hollow win for someone or a small group that removes a platform to talk about mm. stuff, the stuff that was maybe concerning. You mm. know, I don't, I don't think taking down art is ever good. How do you feel, Shane, about, about that? Some, you know, occasionally you'll see old comedy or old cinema representations of really, frankly, offensive attitudes mm. toward uh, LGBTIQ people. But I suppose, in a sense, it's giving us the view of attitudes that existed in a certain time. We don't necessarily have to agree with them today. How should we, you know? Yeah, I guess context is important. There was a conversation in the US about taking the N-word out of Huckleberry Finn, and there's a, there's an argument to be made for giving context to this was a different time, this is how people spoke, and sort of using it as a teachable moment. Like, we're not going to broadcast hate speech from history now on television. But I think that one of the things to consider, I guess, is like we're talking about good-natured people being cancelled. Mm. But I think the other side, which is probably more important, is like bad-natured people being cancelled. Like, has the effects of being held accountable in the public sphere made some people think twice about things that they've done or um, has have there been those sort of positive effects? Because I guess we're, we're sort of like caught between this conversation of like bullying and accountability, but maybe there's also a conversation about how people are a little bit more mindful now, mm. how, like we look at, I mean, we talk about box ticking and stuff like that. I think um, I was in the US during the George Floyd protests and my observation has been since then, we have had such an uptick. And actually, I think I saw something in the news recently about the amount of representation of people of colour, queer people, disabled people, and how that reflects our society. And those things are improving. Some of it can be like box ticky and feel ham-fisted, but then there's other opportunities that are being created. And so there's good with the bad, mm. but I think at least we're having these conversations. And I think it's unfortunate that there are innocent people along the way who do get cancelled or who do suffer. And I don't think those things are right, but I think that it is important mm. that we're having these conversations and being a bit more, well, the problem is we're not being nuanced, I guess. Well, I mean, I think there was that concern, wasn't there, with hashtag uh, MeToo, that a whole lot of innocent victims would get caught up in, in, in MeToo allegations. But that has not proven to be the case. No. And actually, what MeToo has done is been overwhelmingly good in terms of raising the profile of discussing these issues, as has been the case with Black Lives Matter. But I'd just like to finish, we're almost out of time, but I, I do think it's an interesting issue, Brittany, that you raised earlier, that you know, part of what cancel culture has been about has been people who are on the margins, people from diverse backgrounds, people who've been socially excluded, standing up and saying, no, what you're saying is unacceptable and, um, you know, attempting to make people who've said offensive things accountable. But 
I think what you're saying is that we need to go a few steps further than that, and that inclusion is not just about tokenism. Mm. What, what are the next, what, what needs to happen in our performing arts, in our film and television? <laughs> I, I, I think that it's great to have discourse. I think that's the point of art, otherwise why are we doing it? Yep. Um, it's not cheap entertainment, and it's really hard to have a conversation online, and I think that the more conversations we can have in person, the better. I think chats like this are really great. I've, I've already widened my perspective around cancel culture and what that means as well. There's definitely benefits to it. Um, a lot of good has come from it, and it's come from a place of empathy, but we just need to maintain that level of empathy throughout our conversations, I think, mm. and understand that we're all human and a lot of people are trying to do the right thing and not to be too reactionary and not jump the gun and look like you're doing the right thing mm. as social media demands and actually go, okay, am I going to put this person in a job they're not ready for or, or am I going to prepare them so that it might take a little bit longer but we're going to get where we need to get to for the long haul? Mm. I think we've got to really mean it. It's like a whole new skill set in a way, I think, because yeah. like... Uh, even just as individuals, but as artists, you have this moment where you're confronted with people's comments that may be negative about what you've done. And there, there has to be a, a moment of self-assurance where you're like, oh, okay, hang on. Let me, let me listen to what they're saying. Let me think about that. Okay, do I agree? Do I disagree? Are the reasons that I disagree because there's something that I'm not aware of? Do I need to expand my horizon a little bit, understand something from another person's perspective? That's the empathy part. Or actually, is this person just unreasonable and therefore I'm going to continue on on my path? And I think there can be a certain amount of fortification for what you're doing as an artist or as an individual, as an activist, as an advocate, whatever it is, because you get to constantly check in with what you're doing, why you're doing it and question it. I just want to say it is also, you know, it's, it's really good to have these, like often we get stuck in the individual, individual responsibility and the um, individual opinion. And that's one level, but it if it means anything at all, it has to be backed up by larger institutional change, like yep. systematic, like larger institutional change. Otherwise, it's just, it's just chat. Yeah. And so that's that's the thing. Like you know, out of me too comes like workplaces actually have changed. There have been you know when we talk about when someone calls out and goes, why is this? Why is your whole whole program white people? Then that create it has to create um, opportunities. Yeah. Great. Been a fantastic conversation. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for coming along tonight. Um, I want to thank our great panel of guests for their generosity as well. Brittany, Shane slash Courtney, Michael, Zoe. Such a great discussion. Thanks to host Paul Barclay and to the Goma Talks team and performer, writer and comedian Zoe Kumsma, Gumbanya and Turkish storyteller, actor, singer, writer and producer Brittany Shipway, artist Michael Zavros and Shane Jenek, better known by their drag stage name, Courtney Act. I'm Natasha Mitchell. You can follow Big Ideas on the ABC Listen app, which is where you can also share this discussion with your friends. Spread the word on social media. We'd love that. I'll catch you next time. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.